Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The third Sunday after Trinity was six weeks ago, which is hard to believe. But on that day, our gospel reading consisted of two parables. The parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin. Today, our gospel lesson, the parable of the lost son, is the third parable in that series of stories. And this series has been titled The Mercy Trilogy. For context, the occasion for this trilogy can be found early in the 15th chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. How dare he? So Jesus launches into this trilogy of parables as a rebuttal. The first story is that of the good shepherd, who leaves his 99 sheep flock to find the one that had gone missing. And he finds it and he bears it on its shoulders and brings it back to the flock and has a party to celebrate. The second parable is that of a woman who loses one of her 10 silver coins. So she turns her house upside down until she can find that missing coin. And when she finds it, she invites her family and friends over to celebrate that she found what was missing. The third and final story is what we heard today, that of the prodigal son. And it's a story familiar to all of us, I'm sure. The younger son demands his inheritance immediately instead of waiting until the death of his father. This would have been dishonorable to his father, yet the father obliges the son. The son takes the money and runs, going to a foreign land where he squanders it on feasting, prostitutes, and all sorts of tawdry things, To the point where he has nothing left. In his desperation, he takes a job tending swine so that he can eat the pig slop. And when he came to himself, the text says, he realized his station had fallen beneath even that of the servants in his father's household. So he resolves to return home and seek a servile position working for his father so that he can have his basic needs met. On his journey back, his father saw him from far away and ran to meet him, a rather undignified act for a wealthy man of his station in that culture. And the father gave his wayward son more than he expected or deserved. He clothed him in his best robe, slaughtered the fatted calf, and threw a great feast in honor of the prodigal's return. But of course, this gratuitous action didn't please everyone. The older brother refused to go into the party, staying outside to stew. When confronted by his father, the older brother complains, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a kid that I may make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. The father's reply puts to shame the narrowness of the older brother's mindset. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive, was lost 
and is found. The story then acts as a rebuttal to the objection of the Pharisees about the kind of company that Jesus kept. Why did Jesus spend so much time with sinners? Because it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Because God desireth not the death of a sinner, but rather desires that all men be saved. Because as the early parables establish, all of heaven rejoices at the repentance of a sinner. Like most parables, this parable acts as a mirror for us. At some point or another in our lives, odds are that we have been both of the brothers at different points. Because we were all born sinners, we've all been wayward and can identify in some respect with the younger brother. Maybe we left the church out of rebellion. Maybe we gave in and pursued the vices that beset us. Whatever we did, the parable constantly reminds us that the Father was waiting for us with arms wide open, and all of heaven rejoiced at our return. Besides prodigality, however, another arguably more serious risk lurks in the story, and that is of self-righteousness. In fact, I would argue this is the more direct concern of the parable, given who Jesus is speaking to. Self-righteousness becomes a risk for us when we forget that grace is gratuitous and unmerited on our part. It is a gift freely given to us by our Lord. Grace acts as a constant reminder, then, of our utter and absolute dependence on God. Biblically, we have an example of self-righteousness gone bad in Old Testament Israel. As St. Paul discusses in our epistle reading from 1 Corinthians, Israel had the pillar of fire and cloud to guide them as they were being liberated from slavery in Egypt. They were delivered through the Red Sea, a phenomenon that St. Paul links to baptism. They had a rock that gave them water, which St. Paul says was Christ, the living water. Yet even then, he concludes, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, because they forgot the gratuitousness of grace. This was manifested in their actions, the various sins that Israel committed, all while assuming that because they were God's chosen people, nothing bad would happen to them. So they committed idolatry, the going after other gods instead of worshiping the one true God who liberated them from slavery. They practiced immorality by disobeying God's commandments, and they tested God and grumbled against him in the wilderness, a kind of arrogance that's not befitting of a creature. St. Paul states that their examples are warnings for us not to desire evil as they did. In light of Old Testament Israel's story, then, those of us who compose the church, the true Israel of God, must take heed lest we fall. The prodigality of the younger brother is certainly prideful and self-centered. It's bent on sheer self-gratification, making it myopic. Its hedonistic tendency makes the person a slave to the baser passions. Yet one could argue that the holier-than-thou syndrome of the older brother is even more insidious and more dangerous and more grievous because it's more clearly and directly a symptom of pride, presuming that the creature has an entitlement that we do not, in fact, have. Because the prodigal, at some point, reaches rock bottom. 
The money runs out. The hedonistic thrill ceases. But the older brother's spiritual pride causes him to constantly turn inward, not only away from his younger brother who had been lost and was found, but also from his father who was the source of his being and blessing. So his self-righteousness alienated and isolated him from the other. In the older brother, then, we see exemplified the attitude of the Pharisees, self-righteousness, pride, and a holier-than-thou mentality. But the text is a mirror for us, the reader, because it then becomes a metric or criterion by which we are to measure our own lives. Are there places where we are prodigal? Are there ways that we allow our passions to run amok as we please our flesh? Because those passions, unchecked, will drag our souls down to the pigsty. But perhaps even more pertinently, the text forces us to inquire of ourselves how we are like the older brother. Where do we have too much self-confidence? Where do we buy into the myth of self-reliance? Where do we turn ourselves inward and away from others? Who do we write off? It's for this reason that the sacraments which form the foundation of our life as the church are so important. Medieval theologian Hugh of St. Victor believed that there was a reason sacraments use material things like water, bread, and wine to convey grace. And that is that they teach us humility. In the garden, Adam and Eve turned to material things, the forbidden fruit, out of pride. So in our redemption, we are subject to those material things of water, bread, and wine to make us humble. But even more than that, the sacraments themselves are all constant reminders of what Christ did for us. They're ways of recognizing our complete and total dependence on him. Baptism takes us up into his sacrifice. The Eucharist makes his passion and death present to us. Confession applies his propitiatory sacrifice to us and purges us of sin. Ordination makes a man a participant in Christ's high priesthood. And marriage reminds us of how Christ is our groom and we as the church are joined to him as his bride. The sacramental life then is a life that is deeply and robustly dependent on our Lord. It is a recognition constantly that we are the prodigal who has been restored purely by the good grace of God. And if we recognize that and grapple with it and realize it in our lives, then it's a recognition that should always keep us from becoming the older brother. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.